When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Boards Insiders. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. This is a best of episode with Josh Landy founder of Figure One, which has been called the Instagram of Medicine. You can go to the Inside the Boards website, click on the search bar, just type Instagram, and you can find the show notes for this episode titled Josh Landy from Figure One, Instagram for Medical School. Also, one of our most popular articles on the blog, Top Instagram Accounts Every Med Student Should Follow. So this was a two-part episode. We have combined it into one for your listening pleasure. That's why it's a little bit longer. Don't forget our Step 1 Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1 runs from now until the end of June. It's high-yield, med-ed-free on your favorite podcatcher. Check the show notes for the link directly to that podcast or ask Siri to search for the Inside the Board's Study Smarter series podcast. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. Could this be the day I've waited for When all my hard work doesn't go ignore Maybe she was right, they won't realize I can change the world, open up their eyes They know I am both, and some need to burn But some marriage bones, I believe in love I just want to prove I deserve this gift I will change this world, baby, this is it Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast The podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. On today's show, we have Josh Landy, who is the founder of Figure One, which is like Instagram for medicine. It's going to be a two-part show. And in this first one, Dr. Landy discusses what medical education in Canada is like and gives us a preview of how he founded Figure One, which we'll get into in more depth in part two of this episode. And now I will hand it over to Elizabeth Beeman for our didactic portion of the show, our question of the day from Figure One's database. You can see the actual case from Figure One over on today's show notes page as well at insidetheboards.com slash episode 021. Thanks again for listening. Welcome back, Boards Insiders. This is Elizabeth Beeman with your question for today. Coming from Figure One, a 27-year-old male presents to the emergency room with a penetrating stab wound to the left side of his chest. He is dyspneic, combative, and has a blood pressure that changes with respiration. 
Physical examination reveals a distended jugular vein on his neck and distant muffled heart sounds. Which of the following is the most specific indicator for the most likely diagnosis in this patient? Hypotension, pulsus paradoxus, jugular venous distension, and dyspnea. So let's go through these and figure out how we would go about answering this question. So let's work through how we came to this answer. First of all, in this kind of question, you're going to have to figure out what is the correct diagnosis. Now, we have already talked a little bit about cardiac tamponade. Hopefully, you were able to figure out that with the constellation of symptoms this patient has, that would be the correct diagnosis. And then second, we're going to try to figure out what is the most specific indicator, the one factor that differentiates cardiac tamponade from the other diagnoses on our differential. So the correct answer, most specific for cardiac tamponade is pulsus paradoxus. Pulsus paradoxus was explained in the question when it states that the blood pressure of the patient is changing with respiration. Let's talk about cardiac tamponade and then we'll talk a little bit more about pulsus paradoxus and why that happens. So the things you need to know are that cardiac tamponade is going to be presented on the boards with what you may have heard referred to as Beck's triad, hypotension, jugular venous distension, and distant heart sounds. So this patient has those. We have the jugular venous distension, both described in the question and shown in the picture. Hypotension is maybe not explicitly stated, but we do have the evidence of change in blood pressure with inspiration. And the distant heart sounds are also stated in the question, these muffled heart sounds. Now, we do need to think about other things that should be on the differential for this question. For example, we want to be considering pneumothorax, hemothorax, intention pneumothoraxes, and any patient who's presenting with a penetrating stab wound to the chest. These are the kind of ways that they're going to ask you about these other syndromes on the boards. Tension pneumothorax causes this one-way valve in the chest so that with inspiration, more air goes into the chest, but air is unable to escape. The increasing amount of air in the chest causes a life-threatening, very severe status that needs to be managed with needle decompression and a chest tube placement in order to relieve all that pressure. The way that you differentiate a patient, say like the one presented in the question from a patient with tension pneumothorax, is that if the patient had tension pneumothorax, yes, we would see dyspnea. That's the same. However, there's more likely to be physical exam findings consistent with a large amount of air in the chest cavity. You may be able to see on chest x-ray that the mediastinum is shifted, and there would likely be diminished or absent breath sounds on one side. That's really going to clue you in. You may see tracheal deviation on chest x-ray, and you may be able to see a large black area on the chest x-ray showing air in the chest cavity, as well as the potential for a visceral pleural line on x-ray. So if it was tension pneumothorax, there probably is going to be more x-ray findings or physical exam findings that kind of indicate this is a unilateral problem where air is filling up on one side of the chest cavity. The hypotension that's seen in cardiac tamponade can be seen really with anything that decreases cardiac output, so could be seen in the other major things on our differential, including tension pneumothorax, also could be seen with myocardial infarction, also could be seen with a hemothorax. The jugular venous distension is also seen with a tension pneumothorax. However, of the clinical signs presented to us in this patient, Pulsus paradoxus is the one that really keys us into the correct diagnosis more than the others. The question stem states that the patient has a blood pressure that changes with respiration. We know that pulsus paradoxus is just that. 
a decrease in blood pressure of greater than 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration. So let's talk about how this happens. Normally during inspiration, the systolic blood pressure will decrease to a small amount because the intrathoracic pressure becomes negative and the venous return to the heart is increased, as well as the pulmonary veins expanding due to the negative pressure in the chest. The fact that these pulmonary veins can expand means they can hold more blood, and allowing more blood to enter the lung space decreases the pulmonary venous return to the heart, and therefore decreases flow to the left side of the heart. This causes a decrease in stroke volume, which will be seen as a decrease in systolic blood pressure. So this is what happens in a healthy patient. We have a slight decrease in systolic blood pressure because of the increased amount of blood flowing to the lungs, decreased amount of blood going to the left side of the heart. However, there is increased venous return to the heart from the body because of the negative pressure in the chest. And so they kind of accommodate one another. The decrease in systolic blood pressure will be less than 10. This changes in a patient whose heart is unable to expand and fill with the increased amount of blood flow from the veins. In a patient with cardiac tamponade, that's the case. There's too much fluid building up around the heart. The increased venous return to the heart cannot be accommodated, and this decreases the cardiac output. The decrease in the cardiac output is much more substantial, and therefore the patients will have a drop in blood pressure during inspiration that is greater than 10 millimeters of mercury. This is called pulses paradoxus. So pulses paradoxus, as you can see, is the most specific indicator of cardiac tamponade. Pulses paradoxus, our correct answer choice, is indicative of several different medical conditions, including cardiac tamponade, pericarditis, chronic sleep apnea, croup, and obstructive lung disease like asthma or COPD. However, the only one that made sense for answering this question with a patient with a penetrating stab wound was the cardiac tamponade. Today we have Dr. Joshua Landy, who is a critical care physician. He completed his uh, medical studies at the University of Western Ontario, then his medicine residency at the University of Alberta, and a critical care fellowship at the University of Toronto. In 2012, Joshua was a visiting scholar at Stanford University, where he researched online and multimedia-oriented approaches to health education, which culminated in 2013 with the co-founding of the mobile health startup called Figure One, which is especially why we asked Josh to come on the podcast today. Figure One's a free repository of medical images available to healthcare professionals and students in the health professions. And if you haven't downloaded Figure One, you should check it out at figureone.com. That's figure the number one.com. So, Josh, thanks for taking the time today. That's my pleasure, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. So, each of these podcasts, we start with a little bit of learning. And our question of the day is from the NBME's uh, subject examination sample items. I'll go ahead and read it, and then we can uh, discuss it. An 18-year-old man is brought to the emergency department 10 minutes after he sustained a stab wound to his chest. On arrival, he is unresponsive to painful stimuli. His pulse is 130 beats per minute. Respirations are 8 per minute and shallow. And palpable systolic blood pressure is 60 millimeters of mercury. He is intubated and mechanically ventilated. An infusion of 0.9% saline is begun. After five minutes, his pulse is 130 beats per minute and blood pressure is 70 over 40. Examination shows a two centimeter wound at the left sixth intercostal space at the midclavicular line. There is jugular venous distension. Breath sounds are normal. The trachea is at the midline. 
Heart sounds are not audible. Which of the following is the most likely cause of these findings? A. Bronchial disruption. B. Hemothorax. C. Myocardial infarction. D. Pericardial tamponade. Or E. Tension pneumothorax. And the answer is D. Pericardial tamponade. Josh, so you're a critical care guy. I am not. I'm an OBGYN. <laughs> so okay. how would you approach this question if you were taking a test? Um, I mean, this this is a great question uh, for a few reasons, and it's actually a terrible question for a few more reasons. And <laughs> I think we should talk about both of those because I think they're both pretty interesting. The first is, let's just look at the presentation. Somebody gets stabbed in the place where their heart is and comes in with uh, what hopefully most people will recognize as Beck's triad. One of the things that I remember learning more about Beck's triad than the actual name itself is yes. <laughs> that very few people actually present with Beck's triad. Except on the boards, perhaps. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So anyway, this question you could answer before you even are presented with the answers uh, that are provided, the multiple choice options. So I think that's probably the way I would tackle this question. In terms of trying to assess what sorts of things are possible. Certainly you can tell that this person is an extremist, uh, that they have impending circulatory collapse, and that th it's probably some type of uh, cardiac or obstructive shock. And so the two things that sort of leap out immediately, especially given the location of the injury, are tension pneumothorax and, of course, tamponade. We know that given the trachea is midline, um, there's no shift to the side, which is one of the ways that you can diagnose uh, tension pneumothorax. And uh, the fact that the heart sounds are absent is, is uh, again, pointing towards tamponade. There's a couple of things that I took note of in this question that sort of threw me a bit. The first is that the patient had a slow respiratory rate, not a fast one where typically somebody who is very sympathetically activated, um, who is likely to be hypotensive, now becoming acidotic, uh, would be breathing very, very fast. The The second thing is that the patient has a, uh, a systolic blood pressure of 60 or a palpable blood pressure of 60 uh, and then is intubated and mechanically ventilated and subsequently has a higher blood pressure. Although if you, uh, if, if you follow me, having an elevated intrathoracic pressure causing obstructive shock, and then you add the intrathoracic pressure from positive pressure ventilation uh, and the sedation for intubation, there is no way that patient's blood pressure is going to be higher than it was before you started. There's no <laughs> way. Um, in fact, we're, we're frequently warned against intubating these patients without aggressive resuscitation up front because most likely they're going to crash when you intubate them. So uh, that's something that I would sort of want to negotiate around this question, but it doesn't make the answer any less obvious. Sure. Uh, actually, I pulled it from the surgery shelf exam. So a third year surgery um, clerkship student probably doesn't need to know all the details or, or even is privy to the, the knowledge you have in an additional, what, six years of graduate medical education. It's important that the student who sees a question like this, because very likely on your surgery shelf exam or taking a step two, um, you're going to find a question that describes Beck's triad. That is jugular venous distension, muffled heart sounds, and hypotension. Those three components are pericardial tamponade. Um, that's what you should recognize. And um, 
I guess, what would lead you away or argue against, say, choice B, which is hemothorax? Well, I, I was thinking about this. Um, certainly, you'd experience respiratory distress with hemothorax. Mm-hmm. And again, you'd be thinking more likely a tachypnic uh, picture. I, I would expect that. Yeah, I would. Um, I mean, certainly the the presence of distended jugular veins and absent heart sounds are certainly more suspicious uh, in this case of tamponade than they would be of a hemothorax, given that your in obstructive shock, your central venous pressure uh, and thus your jugular venous distension uh, would be would be elevated uh, in tamponade because of the the obstructive nature of the shock in hemothorax. It's a um, it's a hypovolemic shock, and so you would tend to see flat flat veins, and you would definitely be able to hear the heart. I always tell people the the boards are well, they attempt to make medicine something that's black and white. When in reality, <laughs> in clinical practice, it's it's hardly ever like that. So I could very much imagine somebody who is uh, stabbed in the left sixth intercostal space at the midclavicular line, which is a very, very specific place to be stabbed, could also suffer uh, some bleeding into the pleural space and whatnot. So I still think, though, what argues best for this answer being correct is, number one, you need a traumatic cause So you're going to be picking something that results from trauma. And myocardial infarction is is less on the differential than the other four. Bronchial disruption, I think, is a nonspecific term that that the writer here is using, and which for which there's no evidence because the trachea is midline. I, I imagine there'd be more descriptors within the vignette about the location of the, the, the stab wound to specify this over another diagnosis. But the real, I guess, kicker is the presence of those three elements of Beck's triad, which every med student should know, indicates pericardial tamponade. And just again, that's muffled heart sounds, hypotension, and jugular venous distension. The the thing that I wanted to add before, by the yeah. way, was, was on the topic of uh, the patient's blood pressure, which I think was 70 over 40 or something like that. After the intubation. Right. This patient should have a very narrow pulse pressure, right? You would expect that somebody who has an obstructive type of shock where their, their heart literally can't pump more blood than, uh, than it's already doing. Um, they, the patients like that would typically have a narrow pulse pressure because of the low stroke volume. Yeah. And so, um, with a fast, with a fast heart rate, you would expect to see somebody like this with a blood pressure of 70 over 55 you know, 75 over 65. Yeah. I mean, you, you see some really tenuous things, but 70 over 40 is a very generous pulse pressure in, this, in a patient like this. Well, let's let's move on to a little bit about you because having to think about all the things related to critical care, you know, gives me a little bit of uh, PTSD type symptoms. <laughs> Going back to like, you know, the equation for mean arterial pressure and and thinking about all the lines and rounding in the ICU as a student and uh, as a resident, just all the details you had to know. I, I think we want to get into the mind of Josh Landy. So tell us, I guess, to start, uh, where or what was your undergraduate medical education like? All of my training has been in Canada. So I, I think there's probably a slight difference 
that uh, will you you may note throughout uh, my training that things were you know consistent with the way uh, the Canadian med- medical system is designed. Well, actually, I mean that's probably something not a lot of uh, our American listeners know. What are some of the differences? Well, I think it, it, the mo- the biggest differences are not in how it's learned day to day, but in um, how what you expect to be doing when you when you graduate. Because I think it's more the job market and the job structure of being a physician in Canada that's different than the United States. So, I mean, one of the biggest differences between Canada and the United States is the payment structure for physicians. And it's not that I want to get into the details of the financing of those things, but that in Canada, many physicians are not employed by the hospital, but are independent contractors who uh, submit their uh, remittances to the government to be paid you know, totally independently of the hospital. So that that does two things. One, it means that the the hospitals uh, don't hire and fire doctors. Uh, they do something called privileging doctors, which means that if you work at a hospital, um, it's actually very difficult to lose your job. And, and hospitals have sometimes an unfortunately difficult time trying to uh, remediate a physician who may have different practices than the hospital wants them to. Sure. The other part is that uh, as an internal medicine trainee, I was prepared for a, a, a specialty where I was going to be looking after complex multi-system diseases of patients who would be referred from their primary care providers. Because in Canada, internal medicine is not a primary care practice. It's a specialty practice, and it's much, much smaller than the market in the United States for internal medicine, which tends to be more similar to what family medicine is in Canada. So internal medicine trainees who we, I remember meeting several of them during my training who came from the United States and transferred to Canada, um, their practices were tended to be, have been focused on seeing patients in clinic and um, referring them to subsequent specialists. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Canada, uh, many times you, you won't see anybody primarily. They'll be referred to you because you are the specialist and very little internal medicine, although there certainly is some of it, uh, is practiced in, in clinics, and that's specifically in the big cities. Yeah. And uh, still three years for an internal medicine residency? It's four years, um, four years although okay. you're, you're permitted to overlap your fourth year with your specialty training. And so um, I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And so I did three years in at the University of Alberta. And then my fourth year, which was my overlap year, I did at the University of Toronto uh, in my critical care residency. Uh, and then the final year, of course, of critical care after that, uh, completing five years of residency total. So what made you choose critical care? There wasn't anything in any of the internal medicine subspecialties that appealed to me more, that's for sure. But I also liked uh, the idea that you had to think of a person as a as a machine that uh, had dysfunction in many different ways, that there were these systems that were out of, uh, that were in disequilibrium and you had to discover what was driving it and how to uh, resourcefully um, reverse it. So I I like the concept that you sort of like looking after the whole person and not a single system, um, because I I think that's the way I, I tend to think about problems. You tend to think about the system as a whole, as opposed to an individual problem. Um, because as in medicine, just like in life, things are never, uh, never occur in a vacuum. I also like the idea that, you know, as an intensivist, I could meaningfully help somebody in the moment when they truly needed it the most. And that, that was going to be able, I was going to be able to, um, focus entirely on an, on a patient's experience and, um, and deliver what I hope 
uh, what would be the biggest difference that could be made in their health. So I sort of thought like, if I can make the largest difference possible, where, where could I do that? And so all of those things together um, sort of met me at critical care. I also liked uh, the idea that you worked really hard for a short period of time, and then you uh, could really be released from clinical responsibilities to do uh, to do other projects. And uh, like I did with figure one, you know, it's been a, a fruitful endeavor because of that. Okay, so that's an overview of kind of the um, start to finish medical training for an intensivist in Canada. Your med school is four years like ours, correct? Yeah, just just like Abraham Flexner told us to do it in 1910. <laughs> you haven't hasn't changed a bit since. Um, <laughs> or very we're working. On it. We're exactly. working. On it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, what about uh, standardized exams in uh, medical school? What's different about Canada and the U.S.? Well, uh, we we're we're able to take the same exams as you do in the U.S. You know, and I, I took my USMLEs, and I'm, I even uh, took the uh, the boards when I finished my um, my training. So I'm board certified uh, in Canada and the U.S. But the, there's just a different set of tests at slightly different intervals. You you complete a test at the end of medical school, which I guess is concurrent with the USMLE Part One, and then you there is a second part to that test which you do in your second year of residency. And after that, the only uh, examination that's left is your specialty examination at the end, uh, which is given to you by the College of Family Physicians in Canada, if you're a family physician, or the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, if you become a specialist or a surgeon. All right, I'm trying to think about this. So you took USMLE's step one, two, and three? That's right. And the Medical Council of Canada's qualifying examination parts one and two. <laughs> it's nice of you to uh, to know the names of the exams. Yeah, that's right. So, and that's not a, a requirement for uh, practice in Canada. You were just going the extra mile, or had some interest, perhaps, in practicing in the United States. I'm I'm just curious. No, for me, it was it was about keeping my options open and taking the time to really prepare because I feel like preparing for examinations is something that uh, you can learn a lot from doing. Definitely. As long as you're not scared of taking the test itself. Well, a lot of people are, but <laughs> it sounds like you weren't, or if you, you were, you uh, looked fear in the eye and overcame it. But are the uh, MCCQEs uh, similar to the USMLE exams? Step step one and uh, the uh, MCCQE part one are very similar. Uh, and part two, uh, it's more the the Canadian test is more similar to the um, the clinical uh, component, like the uh, CS exam, where you that's right, yeah, the clinical do an OSCE and objective structured clinical exam. That's right. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, I've got an interesting story about uh, Canadian OSCEs, which which you might like. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear it. When I was a chief resident in my final year of internal medicine residency, we had I was on a, a, a committee that was helping set some of the uh, the OSCEs for the the residents of the hospital, and it, it came to the attention of the uh, the uh, the person who was essentially the head examiner that the students had gotten together to create a wiki of of all the different uh, stations that could be on an OSCE and had compiled all the answers, of course, to go with it, and he was furious because. He in his eyes, uh, the students were cheating. You know, I took the opportunity to point out to him that this is stuff that you're trying to get these people to learn anyway. So if they're self-assembling and creating a community where they can share information and get better at the test that they're meant to take in order to learn, then isn't that the whole point of these type of formative examinations anyway? 
And the response was? Um, uh, he was not pleased with me. <laughs> um, yeah, I could see that. It probably makes him feel or would have made him feel like there was more work to be done in, in terms of making sure that it, that the, the stations had some differences and, and really intellectually challenged the students. And, uh, but I mean, that is a good point. I mean, that's essentially the point you made is the reason why there are, uh, companies in, all over the world, which essentially teach to the test that students have to take, um, whether it's, yeah. you know, the ACT or SATs um, or, you know, medical licensing exams. So are the MCCQEs uh, scored or they pass fail? You know, I, I honestly don't remember. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, let me ask you this. Here's a personal question kind of about test taking. Have you had any test-taking failures in your academic history or what you would describe as, as maybe not getting the score you think you deserved for the hard work you put in studying? Oh, in, in almost every test that I've taken. Really? Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> there's two, two, I mean, two in particular come to mind. I'll tell you, I think, the one that's a bit more interesting, which is I, I we had a, um, a type of formative OSCE-style examination in critical care where I remember uh, being asked about how the time constant would affect a patient's ventilation. And I looked the examiner straight in the eye and said, I'm sorry, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I've never <laughs> heard that term before. And um, if you could tell me what it is, then I could probably tell you. And of course, they're not able, to, they're not permitted uh, to tell you any definitions of the words on the exam. Uh, and so I just had to sit there until the time ran out, not having any idea what he was talking about. <laughs> and when, um, you know, when, when I was reviewing the, the exam with one of my supervisors, she asked me why I didn't know anything about that term. And I said, well, to be honest, I've never heard it before. And I'm a year and a half into my training. And so if it's so important, how come nobody has ever said that word before? I just, I, you know, it made me feel like in that moment, um, you're really just asking me if I've heard of something that is not super useful from day to day, yeah. um, you know, and if it's really important, like, let's talk about it. I really, really strongly feel that like education and clinical studies should not be separated. These are things that we need to weave together. And that's something that um, we'll talk about when we talk about figure one yeah. is the idea that education and clinical practice should be this, they should have the same goals. Right. Like make you a better, safer, more competent practitioner, which which to me is why I think about that OSCE argument. And it makes me sort of realize that medical education, even, you know, as recent as 10 years ago, still has not grasped the fact that we're trying to deliver education to make people competent practitioners. It has nothing to do with it. who cares if uh, if things are graded on a curve and who cares if uh, if, you know, a certain number of people um, or too many people are in the top half of the class. None of that's important. The important thing is that you take, you know, 150 people in a, in a class of medical school and you make them 150 of the best doctors that you can possibly. And so it, and it doesn't matter where that information comes from. If they learn the material you want them to learn and they're good at the job you want them to do, then you know, just put them to work. Yeah. <laughs> people are people are dying to get out there. So let's not make residency much longer than it needs to be. Let's focus on competency based training. Yeah, and uh, you know that that brings up a good point too. Um, you you'd mentioned Bex Triad and and that eponym. So the the question is like, is it important for somebody to know 
the term backstriad? Not, not really. What is important is to know the components and what they mean. And actually, the USMLE and um, Comlex have over the years gone away from using eponyms or, or buzzwords, uh, particularly for this reason, because there are certain regionalisms uh, anywhere in medical practice that, that maybe your institution uses the term backstriad all the time in their educational content and teaching. Someone else uses the um, components uh, of the term, the description, and you're not really testing anybody's knowledge if you use some term that has 10 synonyms, but doesn't really give the info that's required to assess somebody's knowledge. So I, I don't know, is is it the time constant something of that nature uh, in critical care? I know nothing about this. So Yeah, no, the time constant is actually a pretty interesting um uh, f- uh, phenomenon, and and it's a, it's actually a physics term that has to do with the amount of time it takes to, in this case, empty uh, all the pressurized air from an alveolar sac. And so, if you think about the amount of time it takes to get the air out, um, that can tell you how to, how the rest of the system is going to interact with regards to um, uh, its com- its sort of systemic compliance. And so you can think about somebody who takes a very, very long time to exhale, like a patient who's got uh, advanced emphysema or COPD, mm-hmm. as a, having a very different respiratory pattern and having different respiratory risks than somebody who maybe has pulmonary fibrosis and has a, a very short uh, exhalation period. Um, and so those are, those are things you need to bear in mind when you're um, designing or adjusting that patient's ventilation settings. I see. Maybe maybe your examiner will listen to this podcast and, and you, you will have been redeemed. Uh, <laughs> but let's not end on a, a negative note. Tell us about your best uh, success in taking an exam for your medical training. What uh, what provides a good example of, of when you, you really did well and what did you do that contributed to that success? Um, that's a question that's nice because I get to sort of flatter myself exactly by that's some tremendous success <laughs> and when I uh, when I did my um, internal medicine boards the examiners uh, stood up at the end of the exam and both shook my hand and wished me luck just like I've never had anybody uh, I think they're supposed to maintain a pretty straight face yeah but at the end of the examination they were like over, like overly congratulatory uh, that the exam was over and it, you know escorted me back to the waiting room and sort of wished me luck with my career. And I, I sort of felt in that moment, like I didn't really have very much to worry about, you know, pending the envelope. Yeah. And which I assume you passed with flying colors because you went on to your fellowship. So yeah, you actually don't, uh, you don't really, if you pass, you don't get very much more information than congratulations. Well, that's good though. In many ways, I wish that's how it were, uh, within, you know, the, the licensing examination, um, sequence as well probably cut down on some anxiety amongst medical students for sure. But I take oral boards. Actually, that's that's an interesting note. In in the U.S., uh, you don't have to do oral boards essentially unless you're in like a surgical specialty. Maybe, maybe that's easier, uh, written exams rather than oral exams. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I personally, I've had a, a lot of anxiety with oral exams. Written exams uh, don't stress me out at all. Yeah, same here. I take my oral boards in in a month and a half, and I've got a little more a little more anxiety closer to what I felt surrounding step one when I was a medical student than I have had in a very long time. And now 
part two of our interview with Figure One co-founder Josh Landy. Let's talk about education more broadly and how Figure One kind of fits into this picture. Uh, I'll be honest, I, I didn't know about Figure One until about a month ago, and I just kept seeing your guys' app pop up on social media feeds. And eventually I, I clicked on it, and uh, or actually no, it was my wife. Uh, she downloaded it, and she kept saying, hey, look at this cool case, look at that cool case. And I was like, what is this app? Downloaded it myself, and I was really impressed at just how many, not only unique sort of zebra type cases that are on there, uh, but the community of people who are posting clinical visual material and who are getting responses from doctors and other healthcare providers, presumably all around the world. So what led you to start Figure One? Well, um, I think I'll, I'll just sort of like walk back maybe one step to be able to, to point out some of the things that were in the environment that led to the production of this tool. Um, and some of those things are the, the behaviors that we all have or that we've trained ourselves to have uh, over the past decade um, using our smartphones. And those habits are things like we know how to compose very short messages that contain a lot of content. Yes. We know how to um, share pictures with people and expect them to uh, like them or respond to them. Uh, we've, we've learned and trained ourselves to give constant updates about lots of different parts of our lives. And most of those parts of our lives aren't super interesting to many other people. But all of those habits would be really well served if you could do them in healthcare. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of other private industries that would benefit from an efficient information paradigm, but medicine is dying for it. So uh, it, it, it just seemed like we have all these behaviors, we have, we know how to use the tools. So let's build a tool that's designed for us to use these efficient behaviors in a healthcare system. You know, looking around, I saw that my colleagues were using their, their smartphones to take pictures of cases and update each other. And of course, when I did the research at Stanford, what we found was that young physicians were doing this constantly, and they were doing it for so many purposes. They weren't just doing it to uh, take pictures of things they had never seen before. They were doing it to take pictures of things that were variations uh, on a theme, to document uh, different versions of things, to ask for help, to give uh, examples of, of learning cases or teaching cases to others. And uh, the behavior of taking a picture and sending it by email or text message was something that when we extrapolated, it was it was going to be on the order of tens, tens of thousands of cases every day were being transmitted via over smartphones. And, you know, it's not particularly safe from a privacy perspective. Sure. Um, and it's also not necessarily efficient because there's so much good information, so many valuable educational assets that are just sinking down to the bottom of somebody's inbox. Yes. And so creating a tool that was going to let us both harness the power and the uh, content of all of those cases and at the same time give people a tool that would be safe to use in a healthcare environment that wouldn't be immediately ousted for, you know, um, not having done the proper research. Um, we put our heads together, sat down, drew a plan and built an app. I think this is so great because I, I've definitely been in situations where I've seen something uh, maybe puzzling. And I, I wanted to just be able to say, snap a photo with my phone and send it to a GYN oncologist friend or, or something of that nature. And there isn't really a good or 
wasn't really a good um, method to do something like that because, yeah, I'd worry about having a patient's, you know, protected health information on my personal device and then transmitting it across, you know, the internet or a cell network, um, accidentally sending it to somebody um, with a similar name to the person I intended it for. I mean, there's a lot of practical issues, which I think prevent me from just doing that sort of thing. And and I think figure one's trying to make this safer, right? And to prevent some high quality educational exchanges that might occur between, say, one consultant uh, and another physician from just being an isolated instance, but rather becoming a general archetype or example from which others could learn. And, you know, medicine is very visual and you might only see, you know, one instance of this or that dermatologic finding or physical exam finding in your career. You may have read about it and seen the one picture that's in all the textbooks. But of course, these are human beings, complex systems, and the variations that likely occur um, even amongst diseases that are supposed to have typical presentations, I, I think is, is, is huge. So did you get a lot of pushback when you proposed this idea? No, actually, um, I got I got I got two sets of feedback. One was pe- uh, people asking how we were dealing with patient privacy, yep. which you know, surely enough, I wanted to know the same thing. And that's and that is the that's the reason why we built the tool the way we built it was so that we could include privacy concerns or privacy tools uh, in from the beginning. So you know, we've referred to this as privacy by design at Figure One. The second thing that uh, a lot of people were saying was. Oh, yeah, I thought of that, too. <laughs> and I guess it just takes, like any good idea, somebody to actually put the legwork in to to get it done. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know, I mean, it's an audio podcast, but I really think the, the listeners should download the app or, or get online and go to figureone.com and, and just see what you guys have to offer. Because if I open it up on my phone here, I've got a dashboard that looks uh, similar to some of the other social media applications I have, like Instagram, Facebook, etc. But a bunch of pictures come up, which I can browse through specialties or anatomic areas. Um, and you have pretty much every subspecialty uh, represented here. There's a uh, HIPAA compliance messaging app f- or functionality for, I guess, uh, sending secure privacy compliant messages to other figure one users, correct? That's right. Yeah. As far as who the figure one user is, uh, you can sign up and then your team will verify the credentials, professional credentials of of a, a healthcare professional. Does that include students as well? It does. Yeah, we we can verify students in many countries, uh, and we can verify physicians in over a hundred countries. But our verification network, I think, at this point, is the largest one in the world. And so, if you're looking for any health, any licensed healthcare professional anywhere in the world, the place where they're looking at cases is at Figure One, along with the over one million other healthcare professionals. Wow, so that's a huge user base. And so you have a, a million uh, people signed up. So any idea how <laughs> how many images or cases you guys have? Oh, <laughs> it's loads. We don't typically release those numbers, but you're not going to get bored anytime soon if you're scrolling down. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, I learned that pretty quick. And <laughs> and I mean, it's so cool because you have this picture here of, for instance, a, a CT scan, which 
you can scroll through with your thumb as if you were in a pack system and see different slices of the same uh, study. And then here's a CT of the chest with like 15 comments from other physicians uh, after the original poster asked a clinical question. I mean, it's it's like very helpful, I think, especially as an attending now when it's just you and nobody is kind of looking over your shoulder to make sure that you're making the correct diagnoses, that you're treating something the best way. You have to rely on your training. But there are many times when it's it's helpful to bounce an idea off, you know, another healthcare professional, friends you've trained with, people, subspecialists or consultants that you've known. And this makes it possible um, very easily. So... Thanks, Patrick. One of, the, one of the things that I'm proudest of is the idea that we, th- this concept that we've put on the app, the tool set that we call paging. And what paging is, is essentially, it's like the switchboard of the world. It lets you request feedback from any particular specialist or subspecialist on that case. And when you upload it to figure one, our algorithm sources a verified specialist in that field who will put the case in front of and ask them to uh, to give you their thoughts. Now, of course, this is for information and education purposes. And, you know, but it, it does let you get the information you need in the moment you need it. And so, you know, with an idea that we're no longer restricted to needing to rely on people who respond to our phone calls, it opens up so many more knowledgeable people who can can contribute and collaborate uh, on a case with you. So I had a case where I had a patient who had um, an unusual film uh, developing on their eye that was rapidly progressive. And uh, being an ICU doc myself, I didn't really recognize what was going on. So I requested an ophthalmology consultation in our hospital. It was a Saturday and the ophthalmologist was going to be in the hospital on Tuesday. So I was going to, he was going to see the patient then. I, I uploaded the picture and paged ophthalmologists on figure one, and not 15 minutes later, I had two ophthalmology uh, uh, specialists whose comments agreed with each other, as well as a number of optometrists uh, as well. Um, the patient just needed a particular type of eye drop to reduce the type of film that was forming because of some exposure that she had had. And, uh, and literally the film was gone by Tuesday by the time our hospital's ophthalmologist came by. And I don't think that's a particularly unusual scenario. No. And, and I think the more people learn about this and the, the more popularity it gets, you'll hear more things like that. Cause I definitely think of situations where this sort of thing would have been really helpful rather than, or not necessarily rather than, but as a way to get some resolution to the clinical problem prior to the usual means that are available. I'm sure this has lots of applications in rural settings and amongst, uh, you know, physicians even internationally who might not have access to the, the network of specialists and consultants that are available in most modern Western healthcare, you know, settings. So, well, I guess I do have a question about this though. So I'm an OBGYN. You know, a lot of the physical examinations that, that I do are, are sensitive in nature. How, if I found, say, some odd vulvar finding, would I use figure one to, I guess, uh, post a question or, or whatnot while protecting the patient's privacy? What are the practicalities of it? Well, fortunately, the privacy laws don't have anything to do with people's private parts. So that essentially means that 
the information that you upload, as long as it doesn't have any uh, identifying information like that patient's name, their insurance number, their phone number, their date of birth, as long as all of those pieces of information are removed through the upload process, and we've got a nice set of tools that make it easy for you. Though that picture of that vulvar lesion can be shared just like any other type of pathology. Remember that, you know, these are things that healthcare professionals see every day. I mean, of course, you know this, you know, people aren't looking through these images, looking for things that are particularly sensationalistic. And I can't imagine that people are looking up and down the list of images, including broken bones, x-rays and ECGs, you know, uh, crossing their fingers that there's going to be something prurient or Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I really, I mean, apart from the sensitivity of, of a patient having their physician take a picture um, of a sensitive area of their body, I don't think that it makes a difference to the to the users because if it's in your field, then it's interesting you, to you professionally. Right. I guess what I was asking is, and, and I've read your terms of service and all that too, so um, <laughs> I, I'm cheating. I was kind of baiting you and Oh, okay. The uh, just the practicalities of what happens to get something from oh this is interesting or I could use some comments on this to figure one and all the people who will use it. So let's say I have a dermatology finding um, that I would like to share with others for educational and informational purposes, and I was curious myself how would I put it into figure one and share it with the network. So I'm happy to walk you through the upload process. That's no problem at all. Essentially, uh, you know, you'll start an upload and it'll just be like any, almost any other um, social media type process where you'll take a picture or select one from your camera roll. We've got a built-in face detection tool, which will uh, detect any faces and block them for you. But then uh, you'll be requested to review the image and make sure that none of the um, privacy uh, sensitive pieces of information are able to be seen on that image. Uh, and there are tools to remove them like cropping or just using your finger to draw pixels over top, which actually erases those pixels. Um, the image uh, will be processed on your phone to have the EXIF data. That's the location and the time when the picture was taken. That data is all wiped from the image and it's uploaded to our server uh, where that image will be seen by our privacy queue. Um, we sort of have a, a privacy moderation team who will look at all the images to ensure that the privacy tools have been used correctly and then approve those images manually. Of course, there's also a, um, a HIPAA authorization form for your patients to sign before the picture can be taken. And that, that form is built in uh, not just for North America and HIPAA, but there's a different version of it in Europe and, of course, in many, many different languages. So that uh, patients everywhere can read it because they're the ones who are meant to read it and sign it. That authorization is right there on your phone and um, and the patient can give you consent right there and then. And do they sign with their finger like a square app or something like that when you... Uh... Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, that's very interesting. So how do you see this applying to medical education? Now, specifically, I mean medical students. I'll start by saying that at the moment, uh, over 70% of uh, North American medical students are using Figure One. And I think that in part, the reason why it's, it's had such rapid uh, uptake 
is that this is an opportunity for you to see more cases. I mean, one of the things that you need to do a long residency for is so that you can see enough of the things that you need to know for when you're going to be practicing. Um, you just need enough variety. You need enough experience seeing cases over and over again. And a tool that's going to let you extend your reach and be able to see cases that you would have never been able to see through your uh, residency are now available at your fingertips every day. And so being able to uh, see cases that are related to things you've seen, hearing about something and wondering what it really looks like and how you talk about it, helping people get up to speed with how they use medical language. I mean, all of these things are sort of little practice versions of what you need to be able to do in real life as a clinician. Yeah. From a student's perspective, uh, having a community that can do that and sends you a medical quiz every week. I think that that's probably just the reason why the, the students have seen it take off so so well. Yeah. So if, if you're not among the 70% of uh, medical students in the U.S. who are using it. Again, you should check it out, figureone.com, or download the app on the App Store. And you're on Apple as well as Android devices, correct? So That's right. And we've got a web app for anybody who needs to be connected to the internet using another format. That's awesome. Is there anything else that you would really like to highlight or talk about? Um, I mean, I'd be happy to talk about any other aspects. I mean, one of the things that I always uh, look for the opportunity to say is that the knowledge of specialists shouldn't be beyond the reach of anyone who works in healthcare today, not within the internet being as connected as we are. People in places where they don't have running water have cellular banking. So having cellular healthcare, I think, is probably the next item up for human rights. Wow, that is a powerful statement. Well, on that note, any like unique figure one mediated healthcare interaction that made a huge difference that really stands out? Um, any figure one like super success stories where maybe sharing a, an item made a difference in somebody's health? Um, like critically? Oh, there's no question. I mean, we get stories from our users nearly every week. We've seen cases where, um, uh, for example, there was a, a baby that was born in Haiti with an unusual skin condition, something that uh, no one had seen before at the birthing center. And when I say no one, I mean the single nurse who was working at the, at the birthing center. She didn't know what it was and didn't feel safe sending the, uh, the baby home with the parents. She posted the case to figure one. 16,000 people came to see that case. And the right response came from a physician on, who was on the West Coast of the United States. And it turned out to be a totally benign skin condition that is just a bit unusual. And so, you know, being able to connect from one place in the world to another place in the world, both rapidly and in an urgent situation, um, was able to make the difference uh, both to this family and, of course, to the nurse who was looking after them. We've got, you know, people who are stationed using Figure One uh, in refugee camps in Syria. Um, we've got users who are in the, the jungle uh, of the, the rainforest in Peru who review cases. The, you know, these are the types of cases that I think are exciting to talk about. But the truth is that many of us feel just as isolated as some of those people do. You know, you don't you don't have to be in the rainforest in uh, the Amazon. You can just be in the rainforest of the Amazon of your mind. And it's just as lonely and just as difficult to stand next to a patient feeling the existential dread of medicine, knowing that you want deeply to help this patient and you simply don't have the knowledge you need. Um, and to be able to access that instantaneously and from anywhere in the world, I think, seems like maybe too futuristic. But, you know, and despite medicine being a bit of a slow moving thing, we're, we're ready for the future. So bring it on.
That's awesome. Well, figure one is free. So head over to figureone.com um, or download it on the uh, app store of your favorite device. And Josh, thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, we look forward to all the cool things that uh, figure one is going to do for medicine in the future. Thanks very much, Patrick. I look forward to it too. This episode's music is thanks to Forgive Durden. The track is Life is Looking Up off the 2008 album Razia's Shadow, a musical. Thanks to Tom Dutton for giving us permission to use this song. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.